Well, let's read from God's Word as we turn to the Gospel according to John. John chapter 10, we're reading from the beginning of the chapter. It's the Lord Jesus, of course, who's speaking. He says, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners is a rich work. So many aspects that are involved in what was needed to save us from our sins. The need for atonement because of the wrongs we've committed. The need for reconciliation to a holy God. The granting of eternal life. We could go on listing various aspects of what Christ has provided for us. And for that very reason, we find in the Bible a variety of descriptions that help us to grasp something of the greatness of that work. There's no one picture, there's no one expression that's adequate to include everything that Christ does for us as our Savior. And so you will find in Scripture, for example, the language of sacrifice, that the Lord Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. The language of paying a price for liberation, for release, a ransom 
We find that often used in Scripture. We find the language of propitiation, dealing with the holy wrath of God. Many of those descriptions, of course, are rooted in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament uh, prepares the way for the coming of Christ, for the work of Christ. Without the Old Testament, we really wouldn't understand the depth of what Jesus has done for us. All these descriptions are profoundly significant. We need them all. God has given them all to us. But is there any one of them that we could think of as the fundamental way to understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there one more than all the others that stands out? And I believe uh, a good case can be made for describing the work of Christ as obedience. We find that running all the way through the the Gospels, particularly and then on into the, the epistles. His work is a work of obedience. And that theme of obedience was often on Jesus' lips, uh, particularly in John's record. It's there in all the Gospels, but especially in John's Gospel. We hear Jesus speaking often about obedience, about coming with a commission that he had been given, a task that he had to fulfill. And I want to think of that theme today as we turn to John 10 once again. And we're looking particularly at verses 17 and 18. John 10, 17 and 18, we're thinking of the obedience of Christ. Verses read, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The obedience of Christ. I want to begin by thinking of a twofold obedience. A twofold obedience. Before we focus in on these words in verses 17 and 18, we need to think of the obedience of Christ from a wider perspective, a wider biblical perspective. Why is the obedience of Christ needed? What exactly is it? And we need to remember that the Bible indicates that sinners have a twofold need. What's wrong with us as sinners? And the Bible says basically there are two things that are wrong with us. The first is we are lawbreakers. We break God's law. Sin is fundamentally breaking God's holy law. And our sins deserve punishment. And the Bible tells us the only appropriate punishment for breaking God's law is actually the death penalty. That is how serious sin is. So Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. We're really taking that to heart. That is what our sins deserve because we're breaking the law of a holy God. And in order for sinners like us to be saved, 
We need that death penalty to be dealt with. Somehow that sentence has to be served. So that's the first element of what's wrong with us as sinners. We're lawbreakers and we deserve death because of that. The second element in our plight, as the Bible describes it, is that we lack righteousness. We lack righteousness. Adam was created perfectly righteous. That was the human condition back in Eden. But as the Bible tells us, that righteousness has been lost at the fall. We no longer are righteous people. That righteousness has gone, it has disappeared, an absence of likeness to God, a failure to do good. We need to keep in mind that sin is not only doing what is wrong, it's also failing to do what is good. And that's what we're thinking of now, this lack of righteousness. It's gone. We fall short of the glory of God. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 3.23. Here's God's standard and we fall short of it. So that's our problem. That's our plight as sinners. We are lawbreakers and we lack righteousness. Two parts to our problem. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ must address both of those if we are going to be saved. Both elements have to be dealt with. And the work of Christ does deal with both of them. What Christ does to save us deals with everything that's wrong with us. And we see that when we think of his obedience. Take them in reverse order. There's first of all what we call his active obedience. His active obedience. What do we mean by that? We mean that the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly kept God's law in every detail. We were singing about that a moment ago in the psalm. To do your law I take delight. And Jesus kept God's law perfectly in every single detail. He is without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us. We've never done that. We never can do that. He has kept the law. He is righteous, perfectly righteous. And so when God declares sinners righteous, and that is what justification means, that great word, It'll be fine so often, particularly in Romans. When God declares us righteous, there really is a righteousness that he counts as ours. Where is it? God is not simply pretending that there's righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus keeping God's law. And God counts it as belonging to us. So that lack of righteousness is dealt with when we're saved. The righteousness of Jesus, having obeyed God's law perfectly, is counted as if we had lived that life and obeyed that law. 
So that's one part of our problem dealt with. We lack righteousness, the obedience of Jesus, his act of obedience, keeping the law, supplies the righteousness we need. But of course, that's only part of our problem. The other part of our problem is that we break God's law. And that brings us to the other side of Jesus' obedience. What we call his passive obedience. That's the term we use in theology. Now, to us, passive means sitting back and doing nothing. If you're passive, you're just sitting there. Now, Jesus is never passive. He's never sitting idle. So what do we mean by his passive obedience? Well, passive is tied with the word passion. The passion of Christ is his suffering and death. And the passive obedience of Christ is exactly that. He takes the burden of our sin on himself. And in his suffering and his death on the cross, he pays the price for our law-breaking. That death that we deserve for our sins, Jesus has died under the wrath of God, taking the punishment he didn't deserve by his passive obedience. Jesus deals with the death sentence that rests on us. So many verses in the New Testament we could think of. 1 Peter 2.24, just one example. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree. And that's what he's doing. In his passive, in his suffering obedience, he takes the burden of our sin and our guilt. He pays the price of our law-breaking. And so the obedience of Jesus is active obedience, keeping God's law, and his passive obedience, suffering and dying on the cross, deals with everything that's wrong with us and provides a full and a perfect and a complete salvation. And it's that passive obedience, that suffering and death that's particularly in view here in John 10 and verses 17 and 18. So we want to focus now in on those verses. We've painted the big picture. We've given you the background to the obedience of Jesus. Now let's look at what these verses have to say about his passive, his suffering obedience. Having thought of a twofold obedience, we want to think now of an awesome command. An awesome command. In relation to his suffering and death, the Lord Jesus says, I lay down my life. And he sets this mission in the context of the Trinity the triune God. And he says, this command I received from my Father. There's Jesus, as he often does in the Gospels. There's Jesus speaking of an assignment that his Father has given him, a command he has received. He came into the world. He became incarnate. He shared our human nature with a mission assigned by his Father. We've said often, 
if there ever was a man with a mission, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been sent by the Father to do a particular work. And as a reminder here that salvation isn't an afterthought on God's part. It's the result of the eternal sovereign plan of God. It was not some emergency that that God unexpectedly had to deal with when Adam sinned. We're not to think of God faced with the sin of Adam and the fall of the human race, wondering what was he going to do about this? How could he possibly sort this out? What kind of a little God would that be? The God of the Bible is a sovereign God who lays down his plan and his decree from eternity. And the work of Christ, his passive obedience, his suffering and death, was decreed by God in eternity. Before even the world was made, God had provided for salvation. And the New Testament church understood that. Listen to them praying. Acts 4.28, as they think of the death of Christ and they address the Father and they say, of Herod, of Pilate, of the Jewish authorities, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that amazing? It is not in any way reducing the responsibility of Herod and Pilate and the others. They sinned a terrible sin in having Jesus executed. They are accountable for it, but behind their actions is what a sovereign God had decided beforehand should happen. God's plan was fulfilled even through the sins of Herod and Pilate and the Jewish chief priests and the Pharisees. It's God's doing. And so we read, uh, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21, maybe the closest there comes to a favorite verse uh, that I have, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God made him. God made him. Death of Christ was in the hands of a sovereign God. It echoes what we read in that wonderful 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Great prophetic description of what Christ would come and do. In verse 10 we read, The Lord was pleased to crush him. And maybe that pulls us up short. We think, how could that be? How could it be that the Lord was pleased to crush him? And this is the answer. That salvation is ultimately the fruit of God's will. Of the Father's will. In perfect harmony with the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's no tension. There's no conflict within the Trinity. It's the Lord's will. And it reveals infinite love on the Father's part 
towards us. Let us never slip into thinking that we have a loving Savior, the Lord Jesus, and an angry Father. That's a caricature of how the Bible describes salvation. The wrath of God is the wrath of the Son as much as it's the wrath of the Father. And the love we see in salvation is the love of the Father as much as it is the love of the Son. Great Scottish preacher in the 19th century, Robert Murray McShane, when he was preaching on this text, 1842, he says, God the Father is as earnest in your salvation as Christ is. And we mustn't forget that. Delight in the love of Christ. But delight in the love of the Father also. It should be a cause of wonder and of praise in the hearts of God's people. That there's this awesome commission given to the Son by the Father. And all that Christ does, including the cross, is the fulfillment of the sovereign plan of God, and in particular of the Father. That's how the Bible describes it. An awesome commission. But that awesome commission is met thirdly with a willing obedience. A willing obedience. Jesus makes it abundantly clear here in John 10 that his obedience to the Father's commission is entirely willing. He is sent by the Father and he does not come reluctantly or hesitantly. He comes willingly. As we've said, there's no tension, there's no conflict within the Trinity. As if the Father might want one thing and the Son another and the Spirit another. They're in perfect harmony. And so here Jesus says of his life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ was not ultimately taken by Herod or by Pilate or the Roman soldiers. At any point, he could have escaped. He could have walked away. Remember how in Nazareth, according to Luke 4.30, when the people wanted to throw Jesus over a cliff, he simply walked through the middle of the crowd walked away unscathed. And he could have walked away from the cross had he wanted to. Had he asked the Father, he tells us in Matthew 26, 53, the Father would have given him more than 12 legions of angels if the Son had asked. They were there available. He could have walked away. He didn't. He willingly obeyed the commission that he had received, knowing the cost. And what a cost. Think of Gethsemane. Think of a sweat like the drops of blood. 
He knew the cost. He knew what it would entail to save us. And he went willingly. Ultimately, not even the Father takes his life. Not Herod, not Pilate, it's not the Roman soldiers, but it's not even the Father. I have authority, Jesus says, to lay it, my life, down and authority to take it up again. In the most absolute sense, his life was in his own hands. He could lay it down. He could take it up again. And he did. He was not compelled to suffer and die. He went willingly. And what's the root of that wonderful obedience? What motivated Jesus to do this for sinners like us? Well, ultimately, it is love for the Father. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14 and verse 31. The world must know that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Love for the Father. At Calvary we see infinite Trinitarian love revealed perfectly, beautifully. Love that overflows to us, yes, and saves us. It's wonderfully true uh, that Jesus loved us when he died for us. Paul marvels at that. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, indeed. Praise the Lord. But the greatest motivation for Jesus was love for his Father. That's the supreme motivation for this willing obedience. He loved the Father. And that made obedience his joy. Even through the dark depths of Gethsemane and through the agonies of the cross where he bore the holy wrath of God, he loved the Father. And it was his delight to obey the Father. And so for us, their salvation. A willing obedience. Love for us most certainly. But above all, love for his Father. Delight to do his will. Again, we sang of it. To do your will I take. Delight. Delight. Writer to the Hebrews speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. What was the joy that was set before Jesus at the cross? No doubt an element of the joy was the vast multitude of sinners who would be saved as he could look 
back into the past and on to the day of his return and to contemplate the innumerable multitude who would be saved. No doubt his heart rejoiced. But the supreme joy set before him. Surely in the light of John 10 was to fulfill his father's commission and express his love for his father. Joy set before him. Obedience is a joy when we love someone, not a burden. And Jesus' love for his father was perfect. And so his joy, even at the cross, was perfect. A twofold obedience. An awesome commission. A willing obedience. And finally, a paternal love. A paternal love. We've thought of God's love from the son's side. Jesus loving his father and fulfilling his command. But we also see the love of God from the father's side. The reason my father loves me, Jesus says, is that I lay down my life. Now, he is not for a moment suggesting that he earns the father's love by his obedience any more than a child earns its parents' love by obeying and keeping the rules. But Jesus' obedience, the Son's obedience, is an expression of that eternal love within the Trinity. Father and Son and Holy Spirit have loved each other eternally. God didn't make us because he needed somebody to love. There's perfect love within the Trinity from all eternity. And Jesus demonstrates that love in his obedience to his Father. Kind of love that has always been there, but we see it so clearly at Calvary in what he endured to fulfill the Father's commission. And do you see that the Father's love for his Son that never ceased for a moment, embraces the possibility of suffering and death for the Son. It's vital we understand that. It is not that at the cross, as the wrath of God was poured out on the Son, that the Father stopped loving him. For even a short time he didn't. The love that the Father has for the Son includes that suffering and that death. The Father did not cease to love the Son as he suffered. How is that possible? How can that be? How could the Father who loved the Son do that to him? The answer is because He was pursuing that higher goal of the sinner's salvation. And beyond that suffering and that death, the glory of resurrection victory. 
Jesus says he lays down his life in order to take it up again. The resurrection victory is always in view. The triumph to come. And this is a very important principle. That the love of God may include pain and suffering. Because when we suffer as his children, often our thought is, God mustn't love me, or he wouldn't make me suffer like this, or I wouldn't have this pain. If, if God loved me, he mustn't love me anymore. But God may permit the pain, permit the suffering for a higher goal. It does not mean that he stopped loving us any more than he stopped loving the Son at Calvary. That should encourage us in our trials, in the hard times. They are not a denial of God's love for us, though we may be tempted to think it. The love of God for his Son included Calvary. It may include pain, suffering for us. The love we see between Father and Son revealed perfectly at Calvary. And it was a love that entailed obedience for the Son. And Jesus tells us, John fifteen ten, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed the Father's commands and remain in his love. A paternal love. Son loved the Father. Father loved the Son. They both loved the Spirit. He loves both of them. And they see it at the cross. The obedience of Christ. It addresses our sin, our guilt, that took our punishment. And it is the fruit of love. How precious it should be to the Christian to think of the love that the Father had for his Son and for us. The love that the Son had for his Father and for us that provided such a glorious and a rich salvation. We live all eternity by God's grace to think of these wonderful things and we'll never have reached the end of them. An obedient Savior who is everything we need as sinners to bring us out of our lostness, to deal with our law-breaking and our lack of righteousness. It's all there in Christ. It's there for you if you haven't yet trusted in Christ for salvation. It's there today, freely offered He's paid the price. It's yours if you'll come and receive it.